When running a business, your employees can create all kinds of interesting situations, like getting complaints because someone on the team always smells horrible. You better talk to Bambi. With Bambi, get access to your own dedicated HR manager starting at just $99 per month. They're available by phone, email, and real-time chat, so onboarding and terminations run smoothly. Team members reach peak performance, and your business stays compliant with changing HR regulations. And with Bambi's HR Autopilot, you'll automate important HR practices like setting policies, training, and feedback. Bambi's U.S.-based personnel are dedicated to your business, giving you access to the HR expertise and personal touch you need. HR managers can easily cost $80,000 per year, but Bambi starts at $99 per month. Schedule your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Visit Bambi.com slash C-Suite right now. Spelled B-A-M-B-E-E dot com slash C-Suite. Bambi.com slash C-Suite. Megan Gibson. The well-being of one person in a family affects the whole family system. This is a supportive community to share research, resources, stories, tips, and life hacks to keep the family brain healthy. Family Brain, and I'm Megan Gibson. Today on The Family Brain, I'll be talking with Dr. Vikram Patel, Dr. Patel is a researcher and psychiatrist and currently is a professor at Harvard Medical School. He is very involved in a number of public health programs aimed at mental health across the globe. One of the key points that he mentions in the TED Talk that I originally saw him on is that most of the mental health issues in our country are not being addressed. Um, the beginning of his TED Talk says uh, nearly 450 million people are affected by mental illness worldwide. In wealthy na- nations, just half receive appropriate care, but in developing countries, close to 90% go untreated because psychiatrists are in short supply. So he talks a lot about ways to train members of communities to give mental health interventions and empowering people that are in the community to help the people that are suffering. So I'm so excited to talk to him and learn from him and find out ways we can empower ourselves to help the people we know. So I saw your TED Talk and I host this podcast as a way to sort of share information about mental health with people who might not have access to that information. And ironically, I'm learning a lot in, in at the same time. I mean, I thought I was going to be a teacher and turns out I'm, I'm learning so much. But I saw your work and I just wanted to, to learn more and share the concepts that you're talking about, about um, equipping people in their communities to help people struggling with mental illness. Thank you. Thank you very much, Megan. Thank you for the interest in my work. So I'm just curious, like in 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 the message you're spreading about helping equip people in communities, what would you say is the biggest um, hurdle or the biggest thing that that makes people nervous about helping people with mel- mental illness? What would you say is is something that that makes it difficult for people to sort of get on board? So it um, you know, it, obviously the messages are different for different people, but I would say one of the biggest uh, constituencies where I face hurdles is people 
to organize mental health services. For example, either governments or specialists in mental health care provision, you know, not the psychiatrists or psychologists, um, insurance companies who are reimbursing mental health care. In that particular group of stakeholders, um, the particular concern is about how safe and effective is it to deliver uh, mental health intervention to community-based providers who are not uh, specialists in mental health care. Right. I was going to say, but the alternative, which you suggest, is often nothing, right? So it's... Well, yeah, it depends where you are. I, I mean, I guess, you know, it depends on the context. Certainly in most parts of the world, the alternative is nothing. I guess in the U.S., some people would argue that, or in high-income countries more generally, um, that the alternative is a specialist behavioral health provider uh, who may not always be easily accessible, but it exists. In most parts of the world, such provision does not even exist. as you're talking is that it's not so much the people. I think that's what I was picturing. Oh, why would people not want to help other people in their communities? It's not so much that. It's just that the systems can make it sometimes difficult for people to feel empowered to do so. You know, you, you talk about people in the community serving other people in the community, and I, I get how it all needs to be connected, sort of ideally. Um, but it almost seems like they're people that speak the same language, right? You know, I've talked to a lot of um, ac- people in academics, and um, I can see how sometimes the message can get lost, right, between between the academic world and the people who are in these underserved communities. And so I love the idea of sort of passing this torch to people who can sort of connect in, an, in a, a more genuine way, maybe. Yeah, so first of all, I don't think the gulf is between the academic world um, and the community. The gulf is between people in the practice world and the community. Um, I think you rarely find an academic, uh, most of us who work in 
driving down or trading, we're not even remotely connected with actual the cold phase of delivery. Mm. Um, I think in some ways it's easy for me to talk about, uh, you know, there should be more collaborative care in the community, but I don't actually work in the community every day. Right. I do work a lot in the community, it's part of my implementation science work, but I'm not a typical delivery agent. I'm not a typical psychiatrist working in a community mental health center or in a clinic somewhere. So I think the real gulf lies between uh, uh, academics and our colleagues who are behavioral health providers in at the cold phase, and then between the cold phase providers, behavioral health providers, and the community. And we have to find ways to bridge both. So in my in my in my case, what I do is I engage a lot with behavioral health providers, psychiatrists, and psychologists by attending, uh, you know, taking up invitations to speak at their conferences and, and meetings. And really emphasizing the importance of the evidence, um, the importance of uh, the role of specialists in extending uh, their, their uh, expertise out into the community, particularly by supporting the idea of task sharing and then supporting the necessary ingredients, that, for example, building capacity, supervision, providing referral pathways, and so on. But what I don't see is, is, is the translation of that from the behavioral health providers to the community. And I think there are many, many good reasons for that. What are some of those good reasons? <laughs> time is a very important thing. You know, I mean, you have to give time for this and you have to be reimbursed for that time. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, a behavioral health provider was spending a whole week seeing patients and being fully reimbursed for that. Will systems reimburse them for time spent spending half that period actually supporting trivials? You know, um, Will insurance companies reimburse uh, the CDOs for the, the work that they do in expanding mental health care uh, into the community? So I think, it, to some extent, it's a time and money. So you know, sort of combine that, it resources um, in terms of uh, 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 you know reimbursing people for the time spent doing uh, uh, public health related work, and for the CDOs for delivering services to non-specialized providers. So what, what in, in, I know you have written a book that you, um, can you tell me the name of the book? I'm blanking right now. It's called Where There's No Psychiatrist. Where There's No Psychiatrist. Not for a context of the U.S. where there are plenty of psychiatrists, but, but, you know, ironically, there may be plenty of psychiatrists, but not one where you need one. Right. So what, what are the things, the key findings that you have found when there is no psychiatrist around how do you, and what's interesting to me, I didn't realize that depression was, um, for some reason, I think it just in the things I've read, I I've gotten this concept that it's much more of an American problem because we're so busy and we're so overstressed and we think everything needs to be perfect. But from what you've talked about, it sounds like the, the measures of depression are pretty stable across the world. Is that correct? Correct. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I, I mean, I mean, I don't know what the word stable is meant to imply, but uh, because it's certainly the prevalence is not the same everywhere. There are huge variations even in the US between different populations and subgroups. Um, you know, the rates are always much higher. For example, in subgroups who are disadvantaged or deprived in some way. But uh, uh, you know, if your question was really, does depression occur in all societies? Yes, it absolutely does. That's interesting. And so what would be the things that, that you have found that are key in all of in these different environments for equipping people in the community to help those that they are around them? So the first thing is being 
very clear about the need for both global evidence as well as contextual evidence. Whatever intervention we design must borrow from both these. Now, the global evidence, of course, is largely coming from the psychological and social work literature. Uh, most of it is from high-income countries, uh, but as uh, evidence has shown the experience of working in many different societies, that these core principles are equally applicable in diverse cultural contexts. But equally, you must also respect contextual evidence. You know, people in every society, in every community have uh, methods that they have used historically to help themselves and others when they are distressed. So we need to be able to embrace both of these kinds of evidence to design interventions. The second principle is that of parsimony. We don't need to necessarily train people to do the whole thing. Uh, we find that often specific skills building techniques, um, for example, behavioral activation for people with mood problems, uh, relaxation training for people with uh, anxiety problems, etc., are just as effective uh, for many, many people. I would say the majority of people, uh, when compared with the whole complex psychotherapy package that specialists would provide. Uh, and that's very good. It's very good for many people because it's brief, because it's easy to learn, and it, even if it helps two-thirds of the people who have these problems, that seems to be a really good uh, public health result. The third thing is that we need to deliver these interventions in ways that are convenient uh, to the person with the problem rather than convenient to the provider. Mm-hmm. And that often translates into delivering care at home, uh, delivering care at times which are suitable for people who often have very difficult uh, personal life. Um, and I can go on. There are, there, are, there are several other principles that we learn. I don't know whether you want me to list them all, but I mean, there's a, there's a large body of implementation science that we've summarized that speaks to some of the key principles of the successful models of translating psychosocial interventions in, in terms of delivery in the hands of uh, non-professional providers. I like that. Yeah, I was just thinking more if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, I want to be that person. I want to be that person who's in my community helping other people and I don't have a master's degree. I don't have an advanced degree. You know, what what can I do differently to to be more supportive to someone who is suffering? So, you know, it's a very great challenge. I have found that one of the one of the downsides of the work that I and many of my colleagues around the world have been doing is generating a demand for skills training to deliver these sorts of interventions, not just from individuals, but also from healthcare systems. Uh, And the problem we have faced is that to do the training and then most importantly the support and supervision that comes after training, because training in and of itself is not very helpful. Uh, I think what really transforms this model into uh, the kind of care that we can, can be uh, uh, very effective for people with mental health problems is, is continuing, never-ending support and supervision, both to ensure quality uh, of, the, of, of, of the therapy uh, and the intervention, but also to ensure that the person who's delivering it doesn't burn out, it's constantly supported and motivated. And the reason that, they, that we've been really struggling with, with, with delivering the set scale and things that we rely on very old-fashioned methods of training and support and supervision, which is based to face with experts. Mm. So, over the last couple of years, we've been uh, you know, addressing these barriers, and we just announced, actually a couple of weeks ago, a new partnership between Harvard and the Sevencast Foundation to build a completely brand new digital platform, uh, which will enable anyone, anywhere in the world, to learn these brief psychological treatments applied for uh, common mental health difficulties, 
mood problems, anxiety problems, trauma-related mental health problems, and drinking problems. These are our four target mental health problems. You'll notice I don't use the word diagnosis because we do not believe that in the community uh, a delivery system we need diagnosis. Mm-hmm. You can just help people who are distressed without the need of applying a biomedical category. Um, and, and this platform will not only use evidence-based curricula and evidence-based ways of learning how to deliver skills-based interventions, but also new evidence-based ways of assessing competency and creating digital spaces for supervision and support. There's a lot more I can say about that, but if you wish afterwards, I could just uh, send you, uh, or you could just look up the Seven Cups Foundation uh, uh, webpage, the, the initiative called Empower. Uh, it's very early days. We only launched it two, two weeks ago. Uh, we've only formed our science council, which consists of the world's leading psychological treatment scientists. Uh, and we're now looking actually for resources uh, to, to actually get this platform going so that in our, um, our, 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 our vision is that within two years, we have at least two or three of these treatments online ready for use worldwide. That's very exciting. That's amazing. And I, it, it makes me think, too, not just of places where there aren't the resources for care, but also for people who don't want to go into a doctor's office or who won't, you know, they want help, but they just won't go through that door. And maybe this is a way that their family can be trained or that, you know, a husband or wife can be trained to help someone who's not willing to go into a typical setting. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have to say, I, I, I I think that is absolutely right. I think, uh, uh, you know, the idea that this is substituting mental health care is not true for many reasons. Uh, you know, instead it's expanding care. And one of the reasons, the one you just mentioned, is that many people simply do not want to see a behavioral health provider uh, for a variety of factors, one of which is they are reluctant to really um, contextualize their suffering in psychiatric terms. Right. Well, I've also heard from a number of people that the way psychiatric or mental health care is portrayed on television and in the movies does not re- make it seem very enticing. <laughs> like it makes people yeah, really. Well, also, let's be honest, many people don't want medication, and that's what they get when they go see a psychiatrist. Right. Um, you know, uh, if you have to ask people, give them a choice between medication and uh, psychological or social interventions, a lot of people choose the latter, uh, and they don't have access to the latter. To see a psychotherapist is even more difficult than to see a psychiatrist. Um, and when you see a psychotherapist, oftentimes you are having to engage over extended periods with very complex therapies. Whereas what most people want is very brief skill building help. Maybe just a friendly person, but not even necessarily a highly specific psychological treatment um, to get back on their feet and on with their life. Right. No, I agree with that. That's great. What What would you recommend to people around the world to help sort of reduce the stigma associated with mental health? What can we do better in our homes, in our schools, in our communities to help people sort of come out of the shadows and, and be willing to, to get help? Well, I think that's exactly what you said. To be brave enough to speak about one's own mental health in the same way that we speak about one's physical health. Mm-hmm. I was once at a, at a meeting recently where a young woman who had struggled with mental health problems really spoke uh, in, in, very, in, in a very dramatic way about how we often hide our mental health problems. She said, you know, I was suffering a lot from, you know, uh, from, from all kinds of personal difficulties in the way I uh, looked at my body image and, and my self-esteem and so on for, for several months. And, um, and, and then I, I, I walked, I cut my leg, I had an accident, 
uh, and my, uh, my, my leg was bleeding, it wasn't serious, but it was bleeding, um, and immediately I sought help for it, and, you know, people rushed, you know, my, my parents came and rushed and, you know, were very concerned and, you know, put a, uh, put a, put a, a band-aid on it, etc. And I started reflecting and thinking, for almost a year now, I've been struggling with such a terrible, terrible thoughts about myself, but I haven't spoken to anyone about that. Um, and I've always imagined that it'll go away one day, and I'm just hoping for the day it'll go away. So why did I not do that with my bleeding cut, even though it's such a superficial cut? And I, basically, she was really speaking to the fact that we hide our our mental uh, the distressing experiences that affect our mental health uh, in a way that we would never do with our physical health. Okay. Um, and I think by talking about our mental health openly, without any fear, without any shame, I think you're right. And I, what's amazing to me is I know that social media and technology can have a negative impact in that way. You know, you can look at all these perfect pictures and, and feel worse. But I also have seen so much of social media being used as a connection for people who do struggle with anxiety or depression and sort of people, I guess it's just being aware of the, the media you're consuming and, and using it intentionally. So I'm wondering if there's anything that I have not asked you about that you were hoping you would be able to talk about with me or share. Um, well, I guess, I guess you have asked me the question I think is most, probably most interesting to your, to your listeners is you know, how relevant are these approaches that have been uh, predominantly tested in recent times in the developing world for the U.S. And I think you've really, tested, you've really, you've really explored that. Well, I wanted to say one more thing, really, that, you know, for people here in the U.S., we should be aware that these are not new approaches here. Um, you know, way back in the 50s and 60s, uh, professionals were gaining, that was the term that was used then, um, were gaining a lot of currency about extending mental health care into communities. There was a lot of trials as well, you know, I mean, there were clinical programs that were using paraprofessionals. Um, and, you know, and so that's been around for a very long time. And uh, in some ways, this idea has, has perhaps become less well recognized over the last few decades in the U.S. For, for what reason, I'm not sure. But it's almost like it was rediscovered in, 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 in the global south in the last decade. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight the fact that there, was, there is actually a rich history mm-hmm. of using community-based resources for mental health care in this country. And I think we need to rediscover it. Right. Well, it it makes me think of almost like Rosie the Riveter. You know, it's not until times of of lack, you know, when the men are going to war. Oh, the women can do this job. That's interesting. You know, until sometimes you realize we really need more people doing this work. Let's give them the chance. Um, And I love I love that concept of empowering people, because I think there is a lot of fear around doing the wrong thing and somehow making something worse.
Okay. I'm excited to learn more about that. I will definitely look it up. Um, and the last question I have for you, this is what I ask all of my guests as the last question. What do you personally do for your own mental health and wellness? And as you're doing all this research and trying to help other people, what do you do that helps you feel good yourself? That helps you take care of your own mental capabilities? Sure, I do. I take two things that I can people do. And it's fun for me to hear. And everybody's just very different. Um, but there are some common themes. And it's just neat. I like, it gets people starting to think that are listening. Well, what do I do? And what could I do differently? And here are some ideas. Um, well, I have so enjoyed talking to you and learned so much. And I'm going to continue to follow what you're working on. I will say I was a little intimidated because I was reading about you before this interview. And I saw you were one of time's most influential people in 2015. And I was like, Oh, I hope, I hope this isn't too hard for me. But I feel like you, you present all of the ideas in such a um, digestible way. So I appreciate that. Thank you, so much. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode of the family brain. I want to thank Dr. Vikram Patel for taking the time to talk with me about his work and his book, where There is No Psychiatrist, a mental health care manual is available on Amazon. And I, my big takeaway from him is something I feel like I realized while I was talking to him is I focus a lot of my thought and energy specifically around this podcast on mental health in the United States. And it was sort of a good reminder to me that while it might not be perfect here, we definitely have many, many more resources than many other countries. And it's it's sort of easy to get um, just focused on the needs here. And he was a good reminder to me in his work of, of the global issues we have with mental health. So I want to thank him for that and thank him for his time. If you wouldn't mind, I would love it if you would leave a rating on iTunes. Five stars would be fantastic. It helps people find the podcast. And you can check out my Facebook page, The Family Brain, or Family Brain Podcast on Instagram. 
I just got on Twitter, but I don't really know what to do with it. So it's Megan Gibson eight, I think. I don't even know how to use that thing, but I'm working on it. I just went to a conference, um, Mom 2.0, and it was all about using social media to spread your message. And so I'm trying to figure out how to better spread word about the Family Brain Podcast through social media. So hope you're patient with me as I'm figuring out the bumps to that because it's not super intuitive. And a lot of the people at this conference were much younger than me. And I feel like they might have just grown up with this as like an implant in their brain. Um, So anyway, I'm learning. So thank you for your patience and thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.